Ever since humanity has traveled across the seas, sailors have been at the whims of nature and fate. In the cases where fate turns against a crew, shipwrecks abound. Survival is then dependent on the human spirit and a lot of luck. But what happens when not only one ship, but two, crash on the same island at the same time? Apparently, the entire spectrum of the human experience. Today, on the Gems of History, we will hear that tale. The tale of the ill-fated Grafton. So not Grafton, Wisconsin. Not Grafton, Wisconsin. I was thinking we should do an ASMR intro for this episode for some reason. Do you want me to uh, hit you with some seagull noises or do you want... Yeah, do your best sea noises. Get the people in the mood. Oh, I offered seagull. Sea is not in my repertoire. Well, sea is part of a seagull. (laughs) Ah. So. Crash. Crash. Ah. Coral abounds. <laughs> you turn into David Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> the coral reef is dead. <laughs> I'll put some like really like some bells and nice like fantasy sounds behind it so that it sounds nice and lighthearted. I'll just do. Uh, I'll <laughs> the just coral do, reef is, is dead. <laughs> it's just minding its own dead business. Like what the hell? What did we do? <laughs> Now you're mentioned on a podcast. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Do you think that uh, it's probably the first time in a long time the Great Barrier Reef has gotten a shout out? Shout out, Great Barrier Reef. You're hey. doing a great job. GBR. Keep being you, you. Mm-hmm. You've heard of the BFG. How about the GBR? How about the GOH? Podcast. Hey. Featuring myself, Jacob Shop, and Evan Roosh. Speaking of Evan Roosh, I am he. <laughs> <laughs> We're the gems of history. Yes. If you're new here, we're a history podcast. We're not historians. We're just two friends that like history. So after that intro, do you think people not your great like your great intro, just us (laughs) me saying Do you think they realize like, oh yeah, that is a ASMRC sounds. (laughs) Yep. That's actually the rest of the hour and a half that we have. Yes. That's that's the entire episode. It's just like the occasional screaming and boats crashing noises in the middle of it too so well that's kind of what the lizzie borden episode was <laughs> yeah, that's true so, we haven't brought that one up in a while hey you know one day we will redo that episode but not today because <laughs> today we got to talk about a couple of ships that didn't have a good time no they they had some holes in the boat so as i mentioned if you're new here we are a history podcast if you couldn't tell by the title and we are just history fans i guess you could say we're not history buffs even like we are we do the research each week and tell the stories to you guys pretty much in the vein of like we just learned this as well for a lot of this stuff so it's kind of a way for you guys to learn along with us and also have a little fun along the way learn some new stuff exactly we like to make fit history we might (laughs) oh god yeah (laughs) we like to make history a lot of fun around here it's kind of how we are out in public, which is very funny if you can just imagine 
just a few friends, pals, just talking about like World War II fun facts Over at the drinks. bar. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone else is like, can you keep it down? We're trying to play pool. We're trying to be like actually cool. Yeah. <laughs> but no, we've honestly been like, this has been a hobby of ours for since we've been friends. So for a very long time. And we love to bring it to you every single week. And we have an exciting topic for you today. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of. Uh, pet topic for me i told evan that he doesn't really need usually we both kind of like do little bits and pieces of the research together but for this one i told him "Ah, i'll kind of just handle this one on my own and then i'll tell you a story so that's what we're doing today so i'm in for the first time in a long time going in relatively blind yeah he's kind of like when we first started the show if you haven't listened to the early stuff that was kind of the whole thing was one of us and the third co-host that we started with he, we, one of us would do all of the research for that week and not tell the other guys what it was about. So then it would kind of be like, oh, well, we're acting as the audience. Mm-hmm. But we changed since then. <laughs> so, right. It's like, that's a lot to put on one person yeah. every so, week. <laughs> so we're kind of going back to that this week a little bit. But yeah, I'm excited. This is a, it's a very crazy story. Uh, there is a lot surrounding the story that is also stuff that we could do entire episodes on like the history of sealing like seal hunting and i did like a ton of research on that and i didn't even put any of it in my notes because i was like i don't even know where i'm gonna fit this in so maybe i'll pepper some of that in there as we go but do you think that there's sealing tiktok It'd be very sad. It but would do you be think very there's sealing TikTok? <laughs> I mean, they killed a bunch of them, so, so like there's areas of the world that don't even have them anymore. So shout out Grafton. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, today we are talking about the wreck of the ship. It's a, a little schooner, which is like a smaller vessel known as the Grafton, and we'll we'll get into like what the whole thing is. But I'm excited. We haven't we haven't done very many uh, seafaring ones other than the Catalpa, really. And that one was really fun too. But go yeah, honestly, yeah, we don't tackle the sea too yeah. often. We're I bought both a, terrified of it, so that makes sense. I bought a bunch of books about like boat stuff over the summer. I was like, I'll do the summer sailing, and then I just did not have time to read any of them. So this is the first one. This is yeah. so <laughs> it'll be the fall of sailing. Yeah, the September of sailing. Yes. So yeah, uh, do you want to just uh, hop on in? The water's fine, Evan. You know what? Let's do that. But before we do that, I want to plug our socials now. See if it, you know, switch it up. Switch it up. But you can find us on X at gems underscore history. Find Jacob at Jake from Wisco. Myself at Whatevskis. You can also find us on Patreon, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Gems of History Podcast. Just give us a search, and you'll be able to find us with the Patreon. Uh, it is $5 entry. We currently offer a sticker as well as participation in voting for listener monthly listener topics. And ad-free episodes and stuff like that. So Ad-free episodes as well. And you get the episode early. That's true. Yeah, www.patreon.com slash Gems of History Podcast. Or just download the app. <laughs> and I'll blow you a kiss. I don't think they're going to get it. Ah, the mail system. Maybe. Supply chain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, let's let's jump on in to the story of the Grafton. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 
So in the first days of the year 1864, the Grafton, which was a sailing vessel known as a schooner, as I mentioned before, was pushed up the rocks of a remote island group south of New Zealand known as the Auckland Islands. The small crew of five in search of unexplored riches decided that instead of giving up hope upon their disaster, they would work together to survive as long as they could and await rescue. They each knew their roles individually, and together they offered companionship which kept everyone's spirits up. As the men learned the ins and outs of the island, they grew accustomed to the difficult lifestyle, for better or for worse. But days turned to months, months turned to more than a year, but they continued to push ahead to stay alive, if not for themselves, for their families back home. But unbeknownst to them, another group was also stranded on the island just out of contact with the crew of the Grafton. Their tale isn't one of hope and camaraderie. It's quite the contrary, because theirs is a story of despair and depravity, which displayed the darkest sides of humanity at nearly every turn. This is truly, and this is why I'm glad that we chose this for me to go in a little blind. This is the perfect setup for like psychologists, you know, like the Stanford experiment where you give one group power the other group not like the difference of how these two groups react to their situation is psychology gold it is so interesting you get literally both extremes of the human experience in this story which is why i thought it was like a fascinating thing to talk about and it's like a really early shipwreck story so it's not there's like very good diary sources that we have that are first-hand accounts from the surviving, like the the group that works together on the Grafton. So it's a very cool exploratory story of like the time period and all of how sailing has evolved from then to now so that we oh don't goodness. have this anymore. Right, so, right. Yeah, it's crazy. As the subtitle of our main source states, it is a quote, or it is Quote, an extraordinary story of survival at the edge of the world. And before we get into our story proper, I want to acknowledge that main source, which is a book by a woman known as Joan Druitt called The Island of the Lost. It's a a very good read. I like it a lot. It's very narrative driven. It's for a, a nonfiction book. It's very entertaining. So... Classic Jacob, like, I'm just going to do some light read, reads a book. <laughs> <laughs> I've had this one a for week. a long time, so yeah. I, I didn't, uh, I, it took me a while to read it just because I had to keep putting it down to do other stuff. But yeah, I'm glad I finally got through it and we can tell this story. And no pictures, so you don't have to. There's keep... like one picture. <laughs> oh, I take that back. <laughs> so sitting around 645 kilometers or 285 miles south of New Zealand on the mainland in what is known as the sub-Antarctic zone of islands is the Auckland Islands. These islands lie about one-third of the way between the mainland of New Zealand and the frozen wasteland of Antarctica. So it kind of gives you a a relative picture of how far south this is. So Very south. Not, not too far north of the frozen wasteland of antarctica right like very very interesting that there's even green on this yeah exactly because it is as south as you can get it's made up of the remains of two ancient volcanoes much of the land mass made up of rocky outcroppings high cliff faces and treacherous hills and mountains as the book states quote The Auckland Islands group is made up of two hilly, windswept landmasses and a multitude of islets. Or islets? I don't know how you pronounce it. It's like small islands. 
is lays. Is, yeah. Sure. <laughs> no, I think it is. It is. is it is. Is, is lits. The larger of the two main islands, named Auckland, lies to the north, and the smaller one, Adams, is separated from its southern neighbor by a body of water called Carnley Harbor, which is actually a strait. I mean, looking at the Google images of this island, looks beautiful. It is very cool. It's very scenic. But, but also, we'll, not, not great to be like stranded on, because yeah. it is extremely mountainous. And as we'll find out, not very hospitable for anything else <laughs> there's a reason why new zealand is where it is and yeah. it's not this island the western coast of the group presents a forbidding rampart of tall precipices while the eastern shores are broken up in headlands outcrops and reefs that extend hundreds of feet into the ocean the islets lie mostly about the northern shores of auckland islands where there is another fine harbor though one large rock named disappointment island lies off the cliffs of the western coast. Wow, quote. what did that rock do to their dad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? It started wearing black eyeliner and listening to at rock and roll music. It listened to so much My Chemical Romance. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, the islands consist of about 57,000 hectares, I think is how you pronounce it, which is a unit of measurement for land, which translates to about 219 square miles of land. And almost all of that space is inhospitable to humans or non-native animal life. <laughs> yes, it's not a huge landmass where you can like grow a crop. No. There's nowhere to grow a crop. As we'll get into, they've tried. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah. the, the, the soil is very sandy. It's very peaty. It does not take well. There's a lot of acid in the soil that just does not make it very sustainable for anything to grow that's not native to that island that's been there forever. Right. Described by one of the naturalists on a later expedition to the islands, quote, A low forest skirts all of the shores, succeeded by a broad belt of brushwork, above which, to the summit of the hills, extend grassy slopes. On closer inspection of the forest, it is found to be composed of a dense thicket of stag-headed trees, so gnarled and stunted by the violence of the gales as to afford an excellent shelter for luxurious undergrowth of bright green feathery ferns and several gay-flowered herbs. Translation, there isn't anything on no. this, like anything to eat on this island. Like all of the trees, like any trees that grow on this island are all twisted and mm -hmm. bent and pretty much like leaning downward because the winds are so strong here that they just blow everything that grows. Right. So even trying to cut them down, you really, well, A, it's, you don't have anything to cut them down with. And B, they're so very hard to cut because they're so windy and twisty. Yep. And then there's only a select amount of them, so you can't really cut them because then you'll run out. Exactly. It's a never-ending circle. The islands were first discovered in 1806, missed by earlier explorers due to their remote location. As we mentioned, they are quite far south compared to a lot of the other islands in this area. Captain Abraham Bristow and his whale ship The Ocean were the first to come across them, naming the islands after Lord Auckland, who was a family friend of his. Probably like best friends. Do you Apparently, think, they, must do you think be. they had a podcast together? Like that's why they're <laughs> well, so yeah, tight. When are we going to get an island? <laughs> One day, my goal is to buy an island for you okay. <laughs> with, with proceeds from the show. Just please ensure that there's a bunch of shipwrecks on it. No one survives. Oh, there's no way I would let you get like a regular island. Okay. That would not be Jacob. <laughs> that would not be like a Jacob Only island. Only something full of misery and pain. <laughs> you, I meant more like spooky, but okay. your, your word, I was like, I'll get you Tortuga. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, just don't the gold 
Bristow returned the following year on a new ship called Sarah and anchored and released pigs for hunting parties and then left to tell everyone that there were seals on the island. <laughs> this led to a dash to the islands to take control of the seal hunting, which devastated the seal population within two decades of the island's discovery. You're right. So kind of what we did with the bison and the yeah. buffalo. Or whales for a while. <laughs> like Whales, yeah. Yeah. So it, whales weren't as bad. I... As I mentioned, I did a lot of reading on this period for seal hunting, and a lot of it was whale ships that just wanted to top off their supplies, and they knew that seals were easy catch, so they would catch them for the furs and the oil, and they would just kind of supplement their whale hunting expeditions with it. And I read that on 140 voyages to a certain set of islands known as the Shetland Islands, they killed, in about a decade, around 300,000 seals between 140 trips. That's insane. Yeah. It's like 15,000 to 20,000 a trip. There's no, like, history repeats itself so much. When you say that there's oil in something, yeah, we're going to get it. Right. And all the, whether that be in an animal or the Middle East. Well, they didn't have petroleum, so they needed it to oil all their machinery and stuff. So that's the reason why whaling and everything was so important for a while. That is crazy. A hundred thousand. 300,000, sorry, 140 trips. Yes, so, yeah, over 20,000 each trip. Wow, like, how much oil is in a seal? Not a lot. So Uh, you have to... It was a lot for the furs, mostly. Sure. Because they made, the Chinese especially, use the furs to line clothing and make hats and stuff like that, so it was a big trade, but... Yeah, they, they, needless to say, they devastated the populations. Yeah, they put a little (laughs) dent in the seal population. so... After the seals were vacant, many avoided the islands other than discoverers who wished to mark their adventures there. Uh, for example, one ship called the Porpoise, which was part of a U.S. exploring expedition, landed on the Auckland Islands in 1840 and left a sign announcing their arrival and found only a little hut and a small garden, but no signs of human life other than that. There's also something inscribed in the tree that said, <laughs> like, A, B plus CD with a heart around it. Someone's been here. (laughs) I thought you were going to say something about... Like Roanoke. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was there, but... Following this expedition, a French ship followed by two British vessels under the command of famed English explorer James Clark Ross, who we should probably talk about eventually, stopped by the island to mark their arrivals next to that of the porpoise, as well as release more livestock like pigs, rabbits, and hens, and plant more fruits and vegetables. Ross, upon his return to Tasmania, then suggested that the islands should be used as a new penal colony because Tasmania and the other ones were kind of getting over overpopulated. And then they can hunt the seals. Exactly. <laughs> However, Charles Enderby, who had owned the ship captained by Captain Bristow that had originally discovered the islands, decided to try and colonize the islands instead because that's what we do. <laughs> we see... We see oil and things, we take it. We see land, we colonize it. Exactly. It's the, it's the 1800s white person playbook. So in the southern summer, which goes from about December to February of 1849 to 1850, Charles Enderby arrived with about 150 men, women, and children and set up a village that he called Hardwick on the Auckland Islands. 
They tried to eke out a living from the soil, which they had been told was rich and fertile, but found that it was acidic, salty, and untenable for crops. Ooh, they got Iceland, Greenland, Greenland, Iceland. There. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, sw- they swapped it around. Yep. In addition, the climate was pretty much eternally dismal. So with, within no more than three years, this endeavor was abandoned amidst disappointment after disappointment from the weather to the lack of whales to just being sheer isolation. Props for making it three years. Seriously. I think I would last two months if I just knew, oh, wow, look at that. Nothing's growing. Oh, wow. This wind is literally bending the trees. Yeah, exactly. It's terrible. After it was once again abandoned, these islands became no more than a potential graveyard for unlucky ships. And one of those ships is the focus of our story today, the friends who arrived on the Grafton. So. As I mentioned, it's important to remember during this whole story that the seasons, if you don't live in New Zealand or Australia, the seasons compared to America are pretty much flipped. So like their winter is our summer, our summer is their winter. It's, yeah, completely reversed. I guess that makes sense when they're at a completely different part of the globe. Yeah, exactly. So as I mentioned, like the summer is December to February, about maybe like November to February. So yeah, it's uh, completely flipped. And that's going to impact our story. So that's crazy to think about, just like our world. Yeah. Like it really does matter. It's like, very weird. <laughs> it's very weird. A two masted sailing craft, the Grafton is what is known as a top sail schooner. I'm going to throw some nautical terms at you guys that you don't have to remember. But if you want to look up what these things look like so you can get an idea of kind of what they were riding along with, then you can do that on your own. But I'll give you all the terms and then we're kind of just going to leave it at that because it's it's not a visual medium. So. And I will stay away from nautical puns There's, as much as I can. You can throw them all out there. But that's one part about this book that was hard to understand is she throws a lot of nautical terms at you and I didn't know any of them. So I had to like constantly keep looking up what these things were. You're like, ma'am, I've been on a pontoon boat. That's about all I got. I know the poop dick. <laughs> hey. So topsail schooners can have two to seven masts and the masts are obviously the big uprights that hold the sails and they're known for their lightness and slender shape, which makes them very suitable for sailing. The top sail allowed for schooners to travel at higher speeds when downwind, so that makes them quick as well. As for the Grafton, she was small enough to make handling easy for a small crew, but also boasted a sturdy build because her previous endeavors saw her hauling coal from New South Wales to Sydney up to 75 tons at a time, it was said. Holy cow. So this is not like a, it's small, Mm -hmm. but it's still capable. But a huge cargo. Exactly. The Grafton was basically a tough little schooner designed to carry heavy cargoes through rough gales and wicked seas, which was just what two men on the docks in Sydney were looking for. Looking a bit out of place, these two men were well-groomed and handsome, wearing their city clothes and their shined boots. Each of them was in their early 30s, with one boasting a peppered black beard and the other a manicured mustache. The first of these men was an Englishman known as Thomas Musgrave. And I read somewhere that he's from America, but in the book it just calls him an Englishman, and from his resume it kind of seems like he lived in the UK, but somewhere I read he was from America, so I don't know. Either way... Dual citizenship, sir. (laughs) English-born guy. Sure. He was a master mariner who had built up a reputation as a steady captain and gifted navigator from the time he was a teenager. 
Musgrave had started sailing the Liverpool to Australia route when he was 16 and rose rapidly through the ranks of the sailing community until he was given command of a ship. By age 25, he had decided to settle down in Sydney, Australia, and follow his uncle, who had set up a successful drapery business there. Oh, okay. Musgrave then found a house, sent for his wife and children, and moved on to captain ships in Australia on the Australia to New Zealand run. But shortly thereafter, his luck ran out, he found himself out of a job, and now he was on the docks in Sydney in search of a boat for a shot at making a fortune. The other man was the Frenchman known as Francois Reynal. That's so French. It is very French. <laughs> Unlike Musgrave, Reynal was coming from the Australian goldfields. Having left home at the age of 14 to try and find a way to support his financially aid- ailing family, Reynal attempted a life at sea, but quickly found that he was too young to find any success in the working community of a seafaring career. <laughs> it's hard. When you're 14. 14 years old, yeah. (laughs) Jumping on a ship and trying to make your way in the world. Instead, he moved to the island of Maridius in the Indian Ocean and became an overseer of indentured Indian laborers at a sugar factory. So he went from trying to sail to being a slave runner. He went, yeesh. It's a very very, very big change. Somehow also very French. (laughs) By the age of 22, Reynal heard of the discovery of gold in Australia and rushed to Melbourne to try, and found a, to try and find out for himself if the rumors of hundreds of pounds of gold found in a single day were true. Upon arriving in Australia, Reynal knew that he had to learn English, so he embarked on a steamship that traveled the western coast of Australia to make a wage while he was learning English. Unluckily for him, that ship wrecked, and <laughs> he spent oh, the night no. clinging to the wreckage before being rescued. So at this point, he essentially gave up on the sea and headed for the gold fields, only to find that the labor was very intense and unforgiving. So again, that's a lot. <laughs> for like, yeah, for like a 16, 17 year old kid at this point. It's very interesting that he went on a rumor to find gold. Like that's very common. Like we have the gold rush of California and whatnot. But I never knew this till now. Australia produces like a majority. Yeah, the world's gold. Yeah, which would have thought, right? It's kind of crazy. Like they just the had, penal colony. Yeah, Sorry I was going to say they, like the penal. They just had prisons and then a bunch of gold fields. Like so wild. <laughs> but the, it's like a lot of Australia is just like wilderness, right? So it makes sense that there would be a lot hiding out there that people just hadn't found. Mm-hmm. So in the Australian gold fields, Raynal learned to hunt, pitch a tent, and survive on meager rations. But eventually, he fell ill with dysentery and. Ophthali- op- hmm, I knew I wasn't going to get this. Op- ophthal- ophthalmia. Ophthalmia? Yes. Which is basically an eye disease that left him painfully blind for nine days. Props for surviving dysentery, though. Yeah. There's not a lot of good cases, like comeback stories from dysentery. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it said that he survived dysentery just by drinking a bunch of bourbon. And he got better, but then he got this eye disease and he was blind for nine days and like his friend took his gun away because he thought he was going to kill himself. Oh God. He's probably like, this is the worst life. Yeah. And I also haven't found any gold because I can't see the gold. But it all got better because after recovering, a tunnel collapsed on him and did so much internal damage that he had to go to Sydney for treatment and was finally cleared by a doctor eight, eight months later. 
the worst luck. Like he's on a D and D campaign, but he keeps on do like rolling ones. <laughs> this guy, this guy is like the worst string of probably seventeen years that I've heard in a while. He's up there, like, yeah. especially covered on this show. That I, you'd be hard pressed to find a worse seventeen year streak that like he really didn't do to himself. No, exactly. like this all like illness just happens to you. A cave collapsing on you just yeah. happens to you. Well, and then he's the folk one of the focuses of the main shipwreck that oh, we're talking right. about. And then today, he goes so. to the shipwreck. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> it doesn't get any better. So both of these men, Musgrave and Raynal, had placed their bounty in the words of two other men who were Musgrave's uncle and his French business partner, Charles Sarpy. So that's kind of how Raynal and and Thomas Musgrave met, was Thomas Musgrave's uncle, his business partner, was a Frenchman who had known Raynal. So that's how they got together. According to these two men, Musgrave and Raynal could expect to find a rich mine of argentiferous tin on Campbell Island which was mainly undiscovered as of yet and was theirs for the taking. So argentiferous just means silver bearing. So basically just they're like, there's tin and silver there is what I pretty much gathered from it. There's metal. Yeah, there's precious metal that you can make money on. So disregarding the obvious flaws in the logic, along with the charts full of warnings about the dangers of Campbell Island, the two men cast their lots on fortune and decided to go over budget and bought the Grafton in October of 1863. You know that this trip is doomed when you say the words they over budgeted. Yep. <laughs> Just from a financial point, but also like there were so many signs. They're throwing everything into this. At a very risky. Like I give them props, but still that's so risky. But this is how it went though, because like even on whale ships, people threw their whole lot into like buying a ship and hoping that they could find whales. And if they didn't, they were kind of screwed. And then they saw those seals and yeah. like, well, we can find a way. Campbell Island is beautiful. Yeah. Also, a side note. That's another sub-Antarctic island, kind of like a little bit north, I believe, of the Auckland Islands. Mm-hmm. So kind of in the same area and also not very hospitable. So these these are not like welcoming places that they're traveling to. They, yeah. They both have like great landscapes for nature folks, but yes. in terms of making money or just surviving, a <laughs> little tough. Yeah. Musgrave and Reynolds set about getting the Grafton ready for the trip immediately, loading her up with 10 tons of sandstone blocks to act as a ballast or a counterweight, which a ballast is pretty much any... It's something that keeps the ship upright instead of tipping one way or another too much in the sea. So pretty crucial. Yeah. And that was in addition to the 15 tons of iron that was already mounted in the ship's hull. But since that iron was already fitted to the bottom of the hull, this meant that the sandstone would just be on top of it and would be able to slide around the ship. Yeah. Which would almost spell disaster for the men later on. <laughs> yeah, they did not pack that well. They, they just needed one dad, like minivan dad, yeah. who's trying to get, who's trying to drive like five to six kids to a baseball game. Right. <laughs> like the way that they'll stack their back of the van. This is what they really needed. But I mean, it's not even like their fault. Like there's just a big flat piece of iron acting as a ballast in the bottom. And they're like, well, we weren't expecting this. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, they didn't really have to, as I mentioned, they spent like all of their money on the boat. So they couldn't really have a, a secure system to hold this. Musgrave then outfitted the ship with four months of provisions, including 20 casks of fresh water, 300 pounds of ship's bread or hardtack, a couple barrels of salted pork, 10 pounds of coffee and tea, and a lot more. 
Fortunately, he had packed extra canvas and rope with them as well. But then they ran out of money. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. They had to buy the boat with the big old <laughs> metal at yeah, the bottom of it. Right. But, I mean, they had essentially everything that they would need. They didn't think they were going to be gone that long. It was just a, pretty much a exploratory expedition to see if they could find this metal, and then they would come back with more provisions and go back with a bigger crew to help get all of that material. Can you say again how much water they packed? You said 40 barrels? Uh, it was 20 casks of fresh water. So I believe those are just normal, like barrels right so you're probably looking at barely enough drinking water to get you through i just did a quick math i did a quick Quick math math. (laughs) um you're looking at probably like five to six months of clean drinking water roughly for like men on board a ship and as i mentioned it was like it was around four months is what they were planning for so yeah and if you planned accordingly yes and if you've never heard of hardtack it is like you have to soak it in water to eat it because it's so hard but it lasts forever because it is so hard <laughs> so that looks so gross it's it's like it looks like, like a cracker it, but like yeah you know that that's just cement yeah, you're biting you, the cement if there's videos of people like trying it on youtube you can listen to it, it sounds like it's breaking their teeth if they don't put it in water so yeah that was what they're eating <laughs> it's literally called survival bread yep. <laughs> that's very funny <laughs> So running out of money was a problem at this point because they still need a chain for the anchors. So they begged Musgrave's uncle and his French associate for more money, which got them 180 feet of chain for each anchor, although it wasn't good quality chain. Ooh. It was budget chain. There is one place where I think you really don't want to budget and it's on anchor a boat. Chain? I think it is anchor chain, to yeah. be quite frank. Or else you're just, you're just in a boat that can't stay still. Exactly. But then maybe the wheel. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> After they had the chain, for better or for worse, they needed to fill the rest of the crew. So the first add-on was a 27-year-old Englishman named George Harris, who had plenty of sailing experience. Next was a 28-year-old Norwegian man named Alexander McLaren, who went by Alec. Last but not least was a cook, and they found that in a man who said his name was Brown, but later, they found out he was a Portuguese runaway from the Azores Islands named Henry Forge. I think it's pronounced Forge. It's spelled Forges, but there's an accent over the sure. E, so I think it's Forge. That is quite the team for a heist, at the very <laughs> least. A tw- uh, two twenty-something English or a twenty-something Englishman, a twenty-something Norwegian, a French guy, another Englishman, and a runaway from a Portuguese island. This does sound like, I bet the vibes were immaculate, I would say. Uh, I don't know if they really talked. No, (laughs) I guess they all speak different languages. (laughs) Forge, his identity wasn't the only thing interesting about him at first, because his nose had been eaten off by leprosy while serving on board an American whale ship in his teenage years, so it apparently left him pretty ugly. (laughs) Leprosy was still a thing in the 1800s? Yeah. He like he got left on an island with some indigenous people, and they like uh, they they took him as like a captured person at first, but then they nursed him back to health, and he kind of like hung out with them. Oh, and he got better. So <laughs> that's actually pretty have, crazy. They have some colorful pasts, to say the least. I always think about that, and these are all people like in their twenties. Yeah, right. 
like Musgrave and Rinal are in their early 30s. Oh, sure. I don't know how old Forge is, but the other two are 20s, yeah. Or regardless, even if, like, they all have pretty incredible world-traveling stories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My biggest story is, like, oh, I... I got nothing. I have I've nothing never to been compare. out of the country. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I have nothing. Yeah. But with Forge, the crew was complete and they prepared to set out. Raynal, before they left, met with Charles Sarpy and Uncle Musgrave to request that they promise to send a search party if the Grafton didn't return within that four months of their departure, prepping just in case that their help was needed. In addition, he made a last-minute decision to bring his double-barreled rifle with him, which he used in the gold fields, which would end up being another fortuitous decision for the crew. With everything settled as well as it could be, the men set off on their journey. On the morning of November 12, 1863, the Grafton left the harbor at Sydney and was almost immediately hit by some bad omens. First of all, a storm from the south came out of nowhere and started battering the schooner and the crew. Then, at midnight on November 14th, a meteor shower prefaced another approaching storm. The barometer fell, and by the next day the storm had arrived. But it wasn't just any storm, it was a hurricane. Oh. One that reached full force by the 18th of November. Raynal took control steering the ship, trying to keep her on course, but the storm was so severe that he was thrown across the deck of the ship and let go of the rudder and the ship spun sideways. This pushed all of the sandstone to one side of the ship, which left the Grafton tipped sideways, only saved by the iron ballast that was secured to the hull. <laughs> There's no level of fear that I've ever experienced in my life that would compare to our ship is sideways. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what do you do? I run to the other side hopefully yeah, <laughs> there's nothing there's 10 tons of sandstone and you're like five guys trying to like push yeah. it back over i can't and also to be thrown across the entire ship by winds i don't know if it was the entire ship well but right like, but yeah. i mean either either way like yeah that's, he was literally thrown <laughs> dude that sucks and like again the guy with the leprosy nose is like a hurricane? Really? <laughs> he is giving God the bird. <laughs> so is Raynal. Like, oh, oh, yeah. He's like, dude, I'm giving the sea one more go, and this <laughs> is what you give me. <laughs> that I'm just like staying in the drapery business. Yeah. You cannot get me off Australia. So Musgrave then took over on the rudder after Raynal was thrown across the strip, the ship to keep it steady, while the rest of the men attempted to slide the sandstone blocks back into place to level the ship, hoping that the ship wouldn't turn again and crush them <laughs> if it tilted. It wasn't until the 21st of November that the crew could finally set the sails again and the storm calmed. So from the 15th or 16th until the 21st was just constant storm. Do they sleep during this? I can't imagine. Not they... really. No. That's... I mean, they, you have to make sure that the, you keep on the rudder. Otherwise, you're going way off course. You don't know where you're going to be. You also have to make sure that the ship doesn't go sideways <laughs> yeah, again. Exactly. Oh, man, that is so tough. By the time the storm had calmed, they had blown 150 miles off course. They sailed for nine more days after this, not glimpsing a piece of land until November 30th, finally catching sight of Campbell Island. However, once they saw it, a dense fog descended around them and it wouldn't clear up enough for them to make landfall for another two days. Finally, on December 2nd, the crew of the Grafton had skirted around the island to the south and come back around enough to enter one of the large harbors on the island and anchor the ship. I can't believe they found it. 
it's I 150 miles off course. That's the thing about sailing back in these days for me is like, I have no clue how they knew where they were after the storm. I could not tell you. I need a GPS to go to the gym. Yeah, because it's, <laughs> it's 10 minutes away. It's dark out. You can't see anything. I mean, right. you, you can use the stars, but if it's storming, you can't see the stars. So you're kind of just hoping. You're really just like praying. Yeah. It's, it's insane to me. Well, I'm sure they have like some semblance of charts. Yeah. But still, like you're way off course. I, I would have gotten, I would be, I would be dead <laughs> in, a, in a minute. Also, 150 miles, like they could have just ended up in Antarctica. Yeah, seriously. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Musgrave and Renal, once they anchored the boat, went ashore expecting to find seals, but instead found nothing but dense brush and high hills overlooking the other harbors on Campbell Island. The two men immediately went to work searching these hills for that argentiferous tin that they were promised, but once again came up empty. So the men set up a small camp and continued to search into the next day. However, Raynal, who was ever prone to bad luck, fell so ill that Musgrave fully expected that he might die on the island. (laughs) As soon as they get there, he fights off a hurricane, then dies of sickness. Gets super sick. For three days, Raynal was too ill to help look, but even without him, Musgrave and the other men realized that their dream of precious minerals were not to come true. Instead, in an attempt to save the expedition from being a total failure, Musgrave decided to try and find some of the seal population of Campbell Island in order to hunt them and sell their furs and the oil to make some of their money back. It's always the seals. (laughs) They're minding their own business. But once again, this idea was dashed upon the rocks because since its discovery in 1810, Campbell Island had been hunted so thoroughly that it effectively had no seal population left. The decision was made that once Raynal was well enough to travel again, the crew would cut their losses and return to Sydney. So on December 29th, the Grafton was headed back out of the harbor into the open sea. But instead of returning home, Musgrave made the fateful decision to head to the Auckland Islands to try and make profit off the seal population there. Mm. And that detour would end up being one of the most important decisions of his life. He was just trying to like save some semblance of money. That Now that sucks. Like I said, they cast pretty much their entire lot on this, this one journey. Right. There's no way that he could come back. I mean, for lack of a better term, empty-handed. Yeah. Like, they didn't even get seals. Everyone gets seals when they go it's to Campbell Island. It's to get seals. Yeah. Are you shealishly? And he's got a family and kids at home he's got yeah. to take care of, so. Right. The following day, Musgrave had already had the Auckland Island groups in his sights, but another storm rolled up on them, and he wisely stayed a good distance from the shore of the islands to avoid the shallow reefs below the cliffs. Raynal stayed below deck because he was still sick until New Year's Eve when the weather finally cleared up and Musgrave called him up to see the beautiful views of stone cliff faces and hear the thunderous roar of the waves as they slammed into the many caves along the coastline. Oh no. 
it like every, oh the the waves hit the coastline yeah, not the, <laughs> no not the ship <laughs> no, they, they weren't just like coasting into the cave he's I, like look at this beautiful scenery man and he's like grab the wheel <laughs> Musgrave's like looking the other way <laughs> yeah i don't quite see it crash no they said like the waves would constantly like go into these caves on the lower parts mm-hmm. of the cliff faces and it would sound like artillery hit like oh yeah that, because it was so loud so Musgrave eventually brought the Grafton around the southern part of the island group around Adams Island and into the strait that separated Auckland in the north from Adams in the south. On the way in, he finally had a bit of good news to relay, because he found some seals. Hey! Once they realized there were seals here, the men decided to set up a short camp and fill their casks with seal oil and salt a few furs before returning back home and setting up a more organized hunting party to come back with later. However, as they made their way in deeper into the harbor, they found that it was still too deep for their short-chained anchors to settle on the bottom. Slowly, they got deeper into the northern arm of the harbor, where the wind died down, leaving the ship and the crew at the mercy of the tides. Which you never want to be at the mercy of. No. Tides is a bitch. (laughs) Yes. The moon doesn't really keep you safe most of the time. Mm -mm. As 1863 turned into 1864, another storm rolled in and pressed the crew of the Grafton to continue moving north in the harbor to find a place to drop anchor. Alec and George set off on the small boat attached to the Grafton and rowed farther up to find a shallow but came back with no luck, and by the time the storm broke, they were already nearly in the northmost edge of the harbor. Luckily, they were finally able to find a spot to lay the anchor down. Unluckily, it was about as near to the rocks as they could get without hitting them, and it looked like the storm was ready to rear its head again. All they could do is hope that the winds from the storm pushed them away from the rocks and not onto the rocks. From morning until evening, the ship strained to stay steady in the storm until around 7 p.m. on January 2nd when everything calmed. As Raynal described it, it was, quote, one of those intervals in which the genius of the storm seems to rest a moment only to take a breath, end quote. So the eye yes. of a hurricane, if you will. <laughs> Pretty much. The storm used this breath to push a strong gust of wind and rain back upon the ship with so much force that it snapped the starboard anchor chain, forcing the Grafton to lurch as far as the other anchor would hold it. She dragged her sole anchor along the seafloor even closer to the rocks. Musgrave watched anxiously, knowing there was nothing he could do. The Grafton rolled and pitched on the waves until around 11 p.m. the sole anchor caught something and held the ship stationary feet from the shore. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you imagine? Do you think at any point he was like, all right, all right, lads, let's go and push it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no. Keep a positive <laughs> attitude, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but precisely at midnight on January 3rd, the anchor wrenched free from the seafloor and the Grafton crashed upon the rocks of Auckland Island. Within 15 minutes, the ship was filled with water and the men scrambled to save whatever they could, shoving it to the highest point on the deck and covering it with a sail to keep it dry. The men themselves then huddled under another canvas until the day broke and just avoided the rain as best they could. Man, and it's like they're, they're also in a storm. So like it's high winds, terrible weather. They just have to watch their ship. As I mentioned, talking about the islands themselves, like it's almost constantly dismal weather. Oh, yeah. Like it's, it's, this is a very harsh area of the world. Once dawn came, the men found that the small boat attached to the schooner was, thank God, still intact. 
and were able to launch that into the water. Also, thankfully, the schooner itself, the Grafton, was taking the brunt of the waves and left their approach to land relatively calm. So it kind of left an alley of sea, like calm seas to the shore because mm-hmm. it was taking all of the waves. Musgrave found two strong lengths of rope at this point. He used one to tether the lifeboat to the shipwrecked Grafton and gave the other to Alec, who swam into the water and moved 60 yards from rock to rock until he reached shore. Good for him. Like, that's some swimming. Yeah. So if if you're imagining it, it's the way they described it in the book is that this like lifeboat essentially is a, a bead on the middle of a, a thread. Like there's an end of the rope holding it to the shipwreck and then an end of the rope holding it to the sh- now to the shore because Alec, once he got there, secured the rope to a tree, which left the small lifeboat tethered in the middle of the water. <laughs> Alec. <laughs> this guy is like <laughs> kind of a hero for this. Yeah, kind of MVP. They were like, he's the biggest and the strongest. Go for it. <laughs> Go swim, you little seal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So at this point, with the boat tethered in the middle, the men then attached a pulley to the lifeline on the tree and used that with another length of rope to send provisions from the ship to Alec on shore. And then it was the rest of the men's turns to get to shore. Raynal, who was still sick, was too weak to swim, so Musgrave tied him around his back and jumped into the water while holding the pulley line as Alec pulled them in. Again, Alec. Yeah, (laughs) like... It was, but it was said like the line was sagging so much that Musgrave was pretty much underwater the whole time with rain all on his back. And yeah. Like by the time they got close to shore, Musgrave's like, I can't get there. Yeah. So Alec came and literally muscled him out of the water to get on shore. This guy's a hero for this. I love, like, this man is absolutely he, a got, hero. He's got that Viking blood in him. Forget and George then followed suit, and thus all five men got safely to shore. Alec had set up the pitched canvas tent, or the Alec had set up a pitched canvas as a tent on the shore, which all of them then huddled under to escape the rain. And this man sets up the tent. Yeah, <laughs> but he'll walk your dog. He'll wash the dishes. <laughs> he'll marry your daughter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's ho- raining this whole time. Yeah, still storming. In all, the men had saved about a hundred pounds of hardtack, which was enough for about three weeks of usual rations. They had also saved about 50 pounds of flour, two pounds of tea, three pounds of coffee, and about a dozen pounds of sugar. Lastly, they had a few pieces of salted meat with mustard and pepper, and six pounds of tobacco that came ashore, but that was pretty quickly used by all of the men. Oh, yeah. If you're, you're definitely using the tobacco in that, that situation. Yeah. yeah. But here, I was, I've listened to the stories about other shipwrecks, and tobacco is kind of a huge thing because, like, the guys don't have it after a while, and then they get nicotine fits, which oh, makes everything worse. Right. So I noticed you didn't say anything about water there, or did I? They did not grab any of the water. I mean, how are you going to get it into the shore without it getting contaminated by the salt? Oh, yeah, you that's know? true. It's kind of impossible at that point. The rest of the provisions that they saved on board the ship would stay aboard the ship until they could safely retrieve them. And in the meantime, the men attempted to light a fire with a damp set of matches, which miraculously worked. And to settle themselves, they made tea atop this fire to drink with their hard bread and had breakfast. And all the tobacco. <laughs> yeah. But the, that's honestly a, probably what saved them. Is mm-hmm. the, like the, I think it's a very small thing. But just the fact that they were able to get this fire going and have breakfast revitalized them. Like right. It gave them another reason to keep going. 
And after breakfast, they realized it was time for work. So Raynal was left to tend with the fire because he was too weak to really do anything else, while the other men headed off in every direction to try and find firewood and a more suitable shelter, like a cave or something. Yeah, not this uh, linen that's yeah, essentially exactly. covering us. Once he was on his own, Raynal quickly fell into despair, stating, quote, Alone and abandoned to myself, you may guess of what melancholy reflections I was soon the victim. End quote. But he found solace by praying to compose himself, and soon the men returned, but they reported that they had not found any suitable shelter. All five of them then fell into a silent depression, except for Musgrave, who was openly weeping at the thought of never seeing his wife and kids again. Ooh, yeah, so the vibes. Very low. They died. Yes. Yeah. They are dashed upon a cliff. And no one knew, like, they didn't say anything because they were, I don't know what to tell you, you know? Right. Like, no matter what, I need a minute to pout here. Yeah. After a while, Raynal finally offered some words, stating that the men would be able to use the wood from the Grafton to eventually build a shelter, and in order to avoid thoughts of despair, they needed to keep themselves busy with that work of building themselves a better shelter. Right? Busy mind, occupied mind, very essential in this. Yes, definitely. You Raynal, can't just be sitting on the beach being like, man, I really hope another yeah. ship comes. From this point forward... Like, Alec is the initial hero, but from this point forward, Raynal is, mm-hmm. like, he, like he's a specimen. Like, it's incredible how much he ends up doing to keep them alive after they finally get settled in. Mm-hmm. The next morning, Musgrave, Alec, George, and Forger returned to the Grafton and were able to dismantle much of it and return that lumber to the shore. They also managed to find some pickaxes, two spades, an awl which is like a pointed tool used for piercing holes, usually in like leather. Uh, gimlet, which is kind of the same thing as an awl, except it's got like a handle. And an adze, which is similar to an axe, but instead of the blade being perpendi- or, uh, parallel with the, the handle, it's perpendicular to the oh. handle. So it's kind of like a, a yeah. pickaxe with a flathead and a hammer. So they found some tools, which are huge. Yes. After retrieving all these supplies, the men moved the tent to a nearby creek with running fresh water, and it was also surrounded by trees, which kept them kind of safe from the elements. The ground there was cleared, and the boards that they had managed to save were placed on the floor of the tent with a fire at the opening of the tent to keep the flies out, and this is pretty much the first time that the men fell into a deep sleep. That had to be one of the best sleeps. I I would assume it's just like your body... Once you put your head down, your body just gives out. Right. Like, there's no way to, like, they're probably not overthinking it too much just because, like, they're constantly working. And just by doing that alone lets them sleep, which is another huge thing with survival. Yeah, exactly. Known survivalist, me. <laughs> <laughs> naked and afraid with Evan Rouge. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm more afraid to be naked. Hey, oh. So all of them fell into a sleep, but Raynal. Instead, he sat awake and listened to all of the strange sounds of the island. And one of these sounds quickly distinguished itself from the others, and Raynal quickly realized that the commotion was from two large sea lion bulls who were fighting feet away from their tent. Oh my, those things are huge, too. Big old boys. They're like eight feet, they said. 
just feet away. <laughs> How did they? they like they, it said like meters away from their tent? Oh my god! So obviously this commotion ro- woke up the rest of the men, and they had ended up having to throw torches at the animals to send them a little further away to make sure that they didn't ruin the tent. Right, like scram, scram. Yeah, these. Oh my god! Looking at picture of these, they are six times bigger than regular sea lions. Yeah, like, these like, things are huge. A sea lion bull weighs like a thousand to twenty five hundred pounds. So, boys, just saying, you got axes. This might be the time, right? So, yeah, it's a very, it's a very uh, eventful first night in the tent. Oh yeah, just trying to catch some sleep and freaking. <laughs> can they just wait a little bit? It's like with Zuki and Fifty. Yeah, exactly. When they're fighting, like, can you guys go outside and do this? The second day was even more eventful, because not only did the men retrieve more items from the wreck, but they also successfully hunted their first sea lion for meat. Using advice from an old sealer from Sydney, they hit the beast in the center of the eyes just above the nose, where the skull was the thinnest, and that kills them. Like, I get it, like, that's a great tip because of the skull, but, like, you're kidding. Yeah, right. (laughs) Like, shoot or hit it between the eyes. That's a... It's like, it's so simple, but it's also crazy that it's just like, if right. you smack it real good one time, it pretty much dies because right, it just right. crushes their skull. Yeah. But it was funny because they said, we we came up with a good tactic. We would rush straight at them without any hesitation, but if we didn't hit them in the right spot and they continued, we ran away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they will mess you up. Because they're pretty quick, if even on land, so... While the men made their tent accommodations more comfortable, Raynal hung and cooked part of the seal meat over the fire. They found out that it was disgusting and oily, but it was food. <laughs> yeah, can't really uh, be complaining about the cuisine at this point. Right. After spending the rest of the day drying out everything they could, the men tried to sleep once again, but found it impossible. All at once, they decided that they needed to build a more weatherproof cabin instead of this tent that they just had in the woods. Yeah. The next day, they set out to find a suitable spot and found one on a hill nearby, 40 feet above the sea level and close to the beach, the tent, and the creek. In addition, they brought the small boat out of the water and onto the beach to keep it safe from storms. And from there, the five men kind of fell into a bit of a routine. They would hunt seals, which wasn't hard because they were pretty abundant near the camp. At the same time, Musgrave, Alec, and George felled the straightest trees that they could find and cut them into eight-foot lengths and put them on the hillside while Raynal mended clothing and cooked. The weather was constantly foul, but the men used what clear skies that they had to their advantage, finding that they could use Raynal's gun to hunt birds on the island in addition to seals. Ooh, very clutch that he brought the gun. Yes. Uh, it's kind of insane too because since a lot of these islands had never been inhabited Mm -hmm. like when whalers and sealers would come to these islands the birds would just come up and hang out with them because they had never seen humans they didn't know that we should run away from that we got that thing on us so there's like a lot of stories of shipwrecked sailors who end up feasting on birds because it's just really easy to catch them because they don't run so it's it's so different because none of it's been explored that is extremely interesting, like, nature fact. Yeah. Also, how many bullets? I'm not sure if you I don't like, know. It didn't really go into the detail on how right. many shots they had, but... Interesting. They, they knew they didn't have a ton, so they, didn't, they did right. use it pretty sparing, sparingly. 
Also on nice days, they would level the hill for the base of the cabin. They ended up marking out a 24 by 16 foot rectangle and dug holes at the four corners using the masts from the shipwreck as the corner posts. Unfortunately, the rest of the timber that they had cut was so windswept and twisted that it was impossible to build the cabin with stacked logs like a normal frontier cabin, mm-hmm. you know, like very straight lengths, like interlocking. They couldn't do that. Right. Everything yeah. was way too mangled. This is not Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> no, it's not Lincoln Logs. <laughs> no. <laughs> Eventually, Raynal was finally well enough to help with the labor as well, acting as both the architect as well as the foreman for the cabin. Like I said, he comes in handy a lot. Oh, yeah. But even though they finally had a streak of good weather, they had to contend with the insects on the island, mainly the flies, which would burrow underneath their clothing to get a bite at whatever piece of exposed skin that they could. And eventually they said, like, yeah, our faces were just constantly swelled up from bug bites and we were itchy. So imagine, like, mosquitoes on stairs or horse flies, like, constantly attacking you. That's something that always blows my mind. Like, there's bugs no matter where you are there's bugs yep like even on this island that has literally nothing else on it besides sea lions and these people (laughs) the bugs are probably also just thinking wow we've also never seen humans (laughs) by two weeks into their shipwreck the cabin that they were building was well underway The weather had remained mostly uncooperative, but when a break came, Musgrave decided that the men needed a day off, and so they took the boat down to the harbor and explored that strait that they had sailed into. They found not only super intense scenery, super intense and beautiful scenery, but also hundreds of seals in their breeding ground, which would come in handy later on. Jackpot! After their day off, they continued on the cabin with Raynal crafting an improvised mortar out of seashells and sand to make a crude cement to fire put the fireplace together. That's awesome. <laughs> this guy's nuts. Musgrave was seemingly off on his own, taking one of his many solo treks around the island in which he mapped the landscape and dwelt on his em- and dwelt on his emotions. He also almost shot himself in the face once when the double-barreled rifle didn't fire correctly and he placed the barrel up towards his face to fix it and shot straight through the brim of his hat. He literally did the old look down the barrel, like, is this thing working? He did, he did the Looney Tunes, like, yeah. Elmer Fudd. <laughs> oh my god. This, this story, is com- I'm assuming, like is completely different if he actually just... Oh, yeah. If he, di- if he dies, <laughs> I'm assuming these guys might not survive, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's there's a lot of very funny stories that happen. I mean, obviously they're trapped on an island. Something weird. It's Gilligan's Island, you know. Oh except yeah, except like way more brutal. Yeah, this is Swiss Family Robinson, except yeah. not wholesome. George and Alec, meanwhile, stripped the copper off the bottom of the shipwreck to line the inside and outside of the fireplace in the cabin. The crossbeams were then bound together. The roof was thatched with a bunch of brush and the outside was covered with a layer of canvas, essentially completing a basic cabin, which the men moved into one month after wrecking on the island. Very fast. They're making great progress. (laughs) Yes. But at this point, they said, like, it's very open air still for the most part. They had canvas all around it, but the wind could still go straight through that. Right. Throughout the rest of February, the men collected grass to thatch the outer walls to allow less wind into the cabin and dug a two-foot ditch around the outside to collect the multitudes of rainwater and prevent that from compromising the foundation of their new home. 
They attached a sturdy door and created a floor made of crude wooden boards. When it was too rough or dark outside to work, the men built furniture inside, including stretchers that hung from the roof six feet above the floor and a seven-by-three-foot kitchen table. A desk was then set up at the north end of the house where Raynal and Musgrave kept their journals using seal blood to write when the ink ran out. <laughs> I know I said Alec was the MVP of this story and also Raynald is the MVP. Excuse me, Raynald was the MVP. It really is seals. Yes. They owe everything to oh, seals. Yeah. Like if they didn't have the seals, they would almost certainly have died. Oh, yeah. But. These journals that they're keeping at the desk, that's the reason why we have such a good accounting of this story, because not only do we have Musgrave's journal, but we also have Raynal's journal. And that's kind of where a bit of controversy comes in in the story, just because there are certain things that they recount differently. Like Raynal said, or Musgrave said that they had like the cots that were hanging from the ceiling mm-hmm. so they could walk underneath them during the day. But uh, Raynal said that they had basically like pine boxes with like grasses and stuff as a crude bed and they would just like pile them in the corners but the as joan drew it the author of island of the lost put it she's like that would take up a lot of the space that they needed in the cabin Mm -hmm. so they it was probably more likely that they just used cots hanging from the ceiling but right yeah i think that's i mean they could have very well had both at one point yeah but i mean yeah it's also very interesting to your point like, this is the 1860s. Yep. And this is the most well-documented event that I think we've ever covered. Right. On like, this, two first-hand accounts. Yeah. The cooking utensils, lamps, and other tools in the cabin were put on shelves around the walls with larger items like the ropes and canvases and stuff like that hung in lofts in the corners of the roof. Raynal was put in charge of the quote-unquote medicines, which consisted of the leftover flour and the mustard. <laughs> Mustard, yeah, <laughs> they would use the mustard to raise boils on their skin. Oh, it because they were like, if you have a really bad migraine, you can raise boils on your skin, like on the back of your neck, and it'll get rid of it. And they basically assume that the reason they did that is to take the pain somewhere else, yeah, and then you'll forget you have a headache. The human mind is crazy, yeah. <laughs> like- I can never I can't imagine my remedy for something just being put a giant boil on my body. Ew. Yeah, it's <laughs> disgusting. And finally, openings were cut in the walls of the cabin and glass salvaged from the ship were wedged into those holes to work as rudimentary windows. Once they finally settled into their new surroundings, the men encountered one of their first large disagreements with each other. Ever since they had arrived on the island, there was a sense of democracy. However, once they had an established quarters, the five men began to split back into similar arrangements to their sailing life. On the ship, Musgrave, as the captain, and Raynal as his first mate, got better living quarters and had most of the control, and in the cabin, they had a nicer area. However, Alec, George, and Forget felt that they were all equals on the island and had all contributed to their survival thus far. Raynal could sense a tension growing between Musgrave and the other three. And Musgrave in general had been struggling mentally more than the others as he felt responsible for their situation and he still had those family responsibilities back home. Raynal felt for him, but he also knew that he had to quell any issues before they escalated. So putting his mind to the problem, he took cues from his days in the democratic system of the Australian goldfields and proposed a fix. In his words, quote, 
My idea was that we should choose among us not a master or a superior, but a head or chief of the family. End quote. Very smart thinking. Basically, an elected member of the group would maintain discipline, adjudicate arguments, and give out each person's daily tasks. The sailors all agreed to this, with the stipulation that whoever was chosen could be fired and replaced if they weren't fit to hold the position. And also, you can't vote for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So they all wrote these agreements in Musgrave's Bible and swore on it to respect that contract, and Ray Null nominated their first choice, Thomas Musgrave. There you go. (laughs) Almost immediately, he was unanimously elected. (laughs) So really... That'll do it. Not a ton changed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was just a little more of a democratic situation. Raynal then offered to cook for the first week to help soothe any lingering tensions, which was an added bonus for the other four men since Raynal was the best cook. But even with his skills, the men were beginning to face a problem. Right. I feel like he should just be all-time cook if he's the best cook, right. but that's, uh, you know, just 150 years of hindsight. Share um, responsibility, I guess. <laughs> right, right, right. So the problem the men were beginning to face was that the mainstays of their diet consisted of seal meat, bird meat, and the occasional fish. And although this was keeping them alive, it wasn't balanced enough to give them all of the nutrients that they needed. Without bread, fruit, and vegetables, the men were at risk of that dreaded seafaring disease known as scurvy. Scurvy. (laughs) According to Island of the Lost, quote, As early as six weeks after the ship's store of fresh vegetables and fruit had run out, and the sailors were existing solely on salt meat and hard bread, small black spots would appear on their legs and arms, then run together until the limbs were entirely purple-black, while at the same time they were afflicted with severe pains in all of their joints. Particularly, particularly when trying to sleep at night. Because the vitamin, vitamin C, is necessary for connective tissue, including bones, to stick together, limbs that had broken and healed years before would suddenly break again, with agonizing results. Gums would become spongy and teeth fall out. Blood would trickle from eye sockets and nostrils. The sufferer would begin vomiting bloody matter. A ghastly death as the brain swelled and burst inside the skull was inevitable. End quote. The human body is very weird. Like, it just needs vitamin C. It needs an orange that bad. Yeah. Like, that is so crazy that eventually your brain will burst. It'll swell and just explode. Yeah. But it said, like, once you do get fruit and vegetables, it, it's miraculous. Like, you yeah. recover so fast. That's so dumb. It's crazy. Why is that in the human rule book? Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Three days ago, I was bleeding out the eyes. Then I got a pear. <laughs> Look at me now. Wow, I'm back at it. <laughs> so needless to say, the men wanted to avoid this situation. And in addition, they weren't getting enough carbohydrates, which provided fuel for the brain and central nervous system. Without carbohydrates, their bodies were beginning to break down their own muscle, meaning that despite their fatty diets, they were still losing weight. Not enough sugar meant that they were always tired, even more so from just, than from just hard labor. But their potatoes that they had on the ship had been used, whether eaten or attempted to be planted, and whatever plants they risked trying on the islands weren't edible enough. But then they found another plant in the marshes that was their saving grace. Originally found by Dr. Joseph Hooker on James Clark Ross's earlier expeditions to the island, it was a plant called Arabia polaris and featured bright, bright green foliage and large waxy flowers. Basically, it was island cabbage. 
Who do you think was the first person to try it? <laughs> Here's I think Island. Green all, honestly. Here's Island cabbage. Yeah. <laughs> so the Grafton crew scooped some up, used it in a meal, and they all agreed that it was a good stu- substitute to fill the rest of their diets. But man, was it bland. They said it actually was pretty good because it's just <laughs> really sugary. Right, right, so, right. And I mean, for them just eating like very oily and like crude seaweed <laughs> probably a welcome surprise yeah they were pretty excited i'm sure to have this substitute like anything else than a seal yeah Raynal even managed to make a crude beer out of the plant which was more sustaining than the water and it gave them more vitamins however the sailors tried to get Raynal to make it into a hard liquor and he almost did using the barrel of his gun as a still but then realized that hard liquor was the last thing that the men needed to focus on staying alive. I'm not going to lie. That would be me. (laughs) Like, can you make this like 5% at the least? Right. (laughs) I mean, I totally get it. Like that's not going to be a good introduction to the scenario. (laughs) Right. They're like, you know what? Go great with this tobacco. A beer. Bunch of whiskey. (laughs) After settling the democracy debate and figuring out the new meal plan, it was time to name their humble abode. The men all wrote their suggestions on slips of paper, and George Harris, being the youngest, got to pick it. He ended up grabbing none other than Musgrave's suggestion, which was... I, I don't know how to pronounce this correctly. It's apparently a North American Indian word, or North American Native American word, uh, but it's spelled epigweight. And I think that's how it's pronounced, but it's spelled like E-P-I-G-W-A-I-T-T. So I don't know if it's Epigweight or Epigwayat, something like that. But that was the new name of their cabin. I like Epigwayat. I think it's that might be, it sounds better. So Epigwayat it was. And Musgrave said that this was a North American Indian word, which meant near the great waters. Oh, well, they are very near the great waters. (laughs) Definitely surrounded by it. Yeah. The men loved the name, and it was the start of their new lives for the time being. Musgrave and Raynal, it's kind of difficult to say which, proposed the idea of school to occupy the men and also to teach them in their free time. Alec and Harry couldn't read or write, so they taught Norwegian and Portuguese to the others in exchange for lessons. Raynal taught French and mathematics, and Musgrave gave Bible lessons to the best of his abilities and said prayers. With each man contributing as both teacher and student at different times, it grew the men closer together. In addition, they also began to craft games like chess or playing cards, but apparently they had a tiff about the playing cards and they all threw them in the fire pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. (laughs) They're like, that is not how you play Euchre. (laughs) (laughs) It was funny because... Apparently, Raynal was the one to write about that event, and he sure. said it was because Musgrave got mad, mm. but Musgrave didn't record it at all, so, so mm. Joan Drewitt kind of thinks that, like, Raynal was probably the one that got mad if he wrote about it. Oh, sure. <laughs> In addition to the games, Harry even found three abandoned baby parrots and brought them back to the cabin as unofficial pets. Oh, honestly, they're having a little bit of a time here. Yeah, once they get the cabin kind of settled, they kind of are living. Once you get the basics of survival, like they found everything that they need to not die of scurvy and just keep themselves sustained. Now I think it's really just about routine and passing the time. Yeah, waiting, like hoping someone comes. Grown ass men went back to school. It's literally Gilligan's Island. Like once they got a routine down, like right. 
they're good. All right. Only two of these parrots survived through infancy, one male and one female, but they quickly became household birds. No. They would splash in their water bowls to bathe, they would dry off by the fire, and then the male, who the man named Boss, would even talk with the sailors. The birds would even join them at the dinner table, with Boss always asking for his food in perfect English. I love this so much. This is like a really cute part of the story. Now this is wholesome. However, one day, Harry was rushing to set a heavy pot of water down and set it right on top of Boss and crushed the bird to death. And then the female died of grief shortly after. No, not Boss. (laughs) It is just the most like... Like head scratchy way to get rid of two pets, but also bird like fly. <laughs> Seriously, like it's just get like so comfortable. Yeah, but yeah, it, it was a fun little endeavor for them to try. They also like a, later on a little baby seal ends up coming outside of their their like camp, mm-hmm. and it like it lost its mom or its mom abandoned it, mm-hmm. and so they're like, one of them says, "Oh, let's take it in as a pet," and then they're all just like. That's not going to work. No. <laughs> <laughs> so they, I think they learned their lesson from the parrots that taking pets might not be the best idea. Yeah, maybe in our like trial of survival, we don't try to keep other things alive. Mm-hmm. And you know that one day they're going to have to eat that seal just because the world is cruel. <laughs> so they, yeah, they cut out the middleman of having it as a pet and just yeah. ate it first. Oh no, they did eat it? Yep. Oh. <laughs> I can't judge. I do the same thing. So the men, in the face of adversity, carried on and continued their newly adopted schedules. Most of the men would worry about either chopping wood or to keep the fire constantly going or hunt seals. After the first meal of seal meat, the men had figured out that seal pups and female seals or cows were the tastier options for eating as opposed to the bull which they had killed the first time. Reynal continued to be the most resourceful man in the world, creating a makeshift whetstone out of their sandstone ballasts to keep their hatchet sharpened, crafting an improvised soap from an ash mixture and seal oil, and found a way to make the seal skins durable and comfortable enough to make clothes out of. Like I said, Mans does everything. He's like, is it MacGyver? Yeah. Like crafts nonsense out of nonsense. Yeah. He's literally that. That yeah, he is the French MacGyver. Yeah, or is it MacGruber? Regardless, no, it's MacGyver. Yeah, it's MacGyver. <laughs> I think MacGruber is like a, a cop show or something. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> so all of these things were important, but the soap was arguably the best thing that he could have done for them because it allowed them to not only keep themselves clean and hygienic, but also their clothing and their home. But as autumn got into full swing in this part of the world, the breeding season for the seals was starting to end, and the men realized that they were going to struggle to find food once the seals left for winter. So, they embarked on the small boat to find a good hunting ground, and landed on a small island that they ended up calling the Figure of Eight Island, because apparently that's how it was shaped. No, there you go. Figure of Eight Island was a perfect spot to hunt seal pups and cows, and the men stocked up as much as they could on meat while they were there. The men killed seal pups in the dozens, knowing that it was either the pups or themselves. Yeah. However, eventually the seals began to fight back, with one large bull leading a charge against the men and even chasing them into the water and biting at their oars and boat. (laughs) 
<laughs> when the seals fight back, that's a great title of yes. plant island of the seals. There was one female seal that apparently just kept trying to jump into the boat. Oh yeah, with sink them. It, yeah. <laughs> so like they were just hitting it with oars and stuff. Sure. And eventually they just shot through its tail and it like or shot the the female seal and it died. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of them were like, oh, okay, we're gonna leave you alone. <laughs> yeah. So this bull that led the charge became known as Royal Tom. And the men kept their distance from him going forward, kind of keeping an agreement that if they don't get too close to him, he won't bother them. Mm-hmm. Days continued to pass, and eventually so did the four-month anniversary of their departure from Sydney. But the men lacked any faith that Uncle Musgrave and Charles Sarpy would send help to find them, so they continued to survive as they had been. Basically, when he got the promise from them leaving, they all kind of knew, like, they already don't want to spend money on us, so yeah. them trying to get a ship to come get us is kind of far-fetched. That's a tough thing to hear from or to realize about your uncle. <laughs> right, exactly. In the rest of their free time, when the weather allowed, the rest of the cabin was thatched with brush and insulated as well as possible. Musgrave and Reynal also went on a little journey to put up a sign at the end of the nearby peninsula with the letter N on it in an attempt to leave a signal for any ship that may come past to realize that there were sailors stranded there and give them a direction which way to go. Is that a nautical term for, hey, help us out? Pretty much. Like, they had originally put up a flag, but they found, like, the flagpole had fallen over because of all the storms and the flag Mm. had actually torn off. So they were like, well, let's make something a little bigger. So they made like a four by two and a half foot sign with a big, just a big letter N to say, Mm -hmm. go north. Right. So that was like their attempt at being like, if someone's passing and has their, their looking glass out and somehow spots this. Right. Then if we don't see them, they might find us, you know. But even with this, all the men kind of knew that with winter approaching, it wouldn't be until at least October before any good chance of a ship would arrive. Weeks and weeks went by, with the weather constantly getting more dreadful and cold because the winter was starting to set in. Soon, it was May, and approaching half a year since leaving Sydney. Not much was reported other than daily tasks during this time period, but Musgrave reported that he was feeling under the weather. Despite this, he still managed to celebrate his 32nd birthday on May 10th, 1864. Hey, Party time. He's like, yeah, I drank some of the beer that we brewed out of that plant, <laughs> but it wasn't very good. It, it, I'm still sober. <laughs> <laughs> but unbeknownst to him and the rest of the Grafton crew, an even bigger event was taking place just 20 miles to the north of their home. On the northern shores of Auckland Island, an 888-ton ship known as the Invercald had unwittingly sailed into one of the most dangerous coasts in the world. Through the sleet and fog, the ship's captain, a Scotsman named George Delgarno, was unable to see that they were coming straight upon land. As one of the men aboard put it, quote, There appeared, however, so many rocks, reefs, and breakers ahead that we saw it would be very dangerous, but still carried on sail in hopes of getting through this passage, as we knew there was no other chance of getting clear, owing to the direction from which the wind was blowing. It was then very dark, with heavy rain, a hurricane blowing, and a tremendous sea running, and anyone knows about... And anyone who knows about beating a light ship off a lee shore can easily understand what our thoughts were when we expected every minute to strike, end quote. Yeah, sailing or driving into something you can't see. Yeah, and it's 1864, so you right. don't have lights. The, like, there's no, your light is the moon. And it's <laughs> foggy and sleeting. Yeah. So 
yeah, it's a very tense situation because they could see they could still spot the land. I mean, they had lightning and stuff, mm-hmm. so they could kind of get their bearings. But at any moment, they're like, we could hit a reef, could hit a rock, anything. And unfortunately for this ship's crew, strike they did. The ship had gotten so close to the shore that its masts had been snapped off on the overhanging stones, so the orders to drop the anchors at this point were useless. The ship hit the reefs and the rocks and caved in on itself. The ballast weight for the ship plunged to the bottom of the water, and all of the canvas and the rope was carried off to sea. One sailor named Robert Holding looked around in horror to realize that he was the only man left on the ship, and the rest of his crewmates were struggling in the water or completely gone. Holding was washed off the ship himself and onto the shore in the darkness, thinking he was the only one left, but as he yelled out, more men found him, and they all huddled together on the beach to wait out the night together. Unfortunately, this was just the beginning of their nightmare on the unforgiving subantarctic islands, which we will discuss in length next week on the Gems of History podcast. Two-parter. Two ships. That is... uh much more horrific shipwreck story than our original crew had. Yeah. I will say like, there's not a good shipwreck story, but oof, does that suck? There's is like tenfold more violent and it's a, it's yeah. a huge ship. So yeah, huge ship. You said 888 ton. Yeah. <laughs> that just went straight into rocks. Well, like it's like a passage into rocks, but regardless, like everything got snapped off and <laughs> rammed into rocks. Yeah, it's like ugh, not good. Yeah. But yeah, they they have a way worse time. I mean, because like I said, the ropes and the canvas and everything all out to sea. They don't have any of that stuff to like use for tenting or anything. So yeah, no shelter, no anything. Yeah. It's going to get rough for these guys next week. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Like this week was very wholesome. It's like just struggling in the face of adversity and like overcoming adversity next week i'm sure it's not gonna be fun they they definitely face adversity that's oh yes sure. but they do not <laughs> no they don't it overcome well. it though no. <laughs> yeah. yeah we the uh the guys in the uh pig are just kind of hanging out yeah <laughs> they're, right <laughs> they're, they're they're hoping to see some more parrot babies yeah yeah, that's the uh, that is the first part of the wreck of the Grafton on the Auckland Islands. Yes, absolutely fantastic episode. I'm very excited for next week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can go to our aforementioned social medias. Yeah, I forgot we did them at the beginning. Oh yeah, we uh, will be back to you next week. But I guess Jacob, any other you know thoughts? Uh not really. I mean, I I was hoping that there would be like a movie or something based on this story, but there's really I don't think there really is anything. And even like if you look up the wreck of the Grafton Auckland Islands on Google, it's kind of hard to find this story. Like you have to look up a pigwai, like the name of the shack <laughs> to find the real like detailed accounts of it online. So, it's very interesting. I did see there's rumors that Martin Scorsese is coming up with a new film with Leo DiCaprio about shipwrecks and the description seems similar to this that however i don't know that for sure so well if they are that'd be awesome because this kind of i think this would be an awesome movie oh my god yeah but yeah we will be back next week to discuss the finale to the tale of the shipwreck of the grafton and now they're unwitting partners in crime i guess not crime partners (laughs) in disaster (laughs) and very much in the invercald so yeah, uh, if you guys liked this episode, stay tuned for next week. I, I just think these 
early sailing stories are fascinating. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, we, uh, if you guys like this, we will definitely do more in the future. Like I said, I got a bunch of books on sailing and I haven't read much of them. So yeah, let us know. But until next week, thank you for listening this week. We all love you and stay polished.